Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques, so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my new book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at voltagecontrol.com slash magical dash meetings dash quick dash guide. Today, I'm with a party scientist, an international human connection facilitator for festivals, conferences, and Fortune 500 companies. This guy is probably the best in the world at facilitating virtual and physical parties. Welcome to the show, Jacques. All right. Ready to party. Thank you so much, Douglas. Yeah, it's good to have you here. So... Let's hear a little bit about how you got your start in being a party scientist. Like, what is the formation of a party scientist? What does that story look like? No doubt. No doubt. You know, it's it's so ironic because as I learn more and more about facilitation and human connection, I identify less and less with the word party, but it's such a funny combination uh, and and it's such a great brand that I've, I've stuck with it, but, uh, really I'm obsessed with public health and specifically the health benefits of human connection. And ultimately I believe singing, dancing, touching, and, uh, and also playing. These are really healthy human behaviors. And, you know, this, this understanding of the public health benefits of partying came from really witnessing the 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 carnage of party culture uh i worked as an emergency medic um as a beach lifeguard really involved in first aid and i'd go to these festivals i'd drive around a golf cart and i would find unconscious teenagers and bring them back to the emergency doctors and I'd also be roaming through the crowds of people, you know, partying, quote unquote. And I'd notice people neglecting one another. And I'd notice people being uh, very, very uh, out of it. And these experiences led me kind of in this medical direction. And so I took some public health courses at the University of British Columbia. And then eventually I, I started to combine the two. And uh, I started leading these massive flash mobs in my city, and I was a preacher of sober partying. Uh, And since then, it's really evolved. And now the question I'm interested in is, how do we facilitate the most nourishing uh, gatherings where people connect intimately, playfully, joyfully? It's really fascinating because when you mentioned this memory, you know, in the story around kind of seeing yeah. these people being out of it, it makes me think about 
how those moments can be so insular. Like everyone's so alone, even though they might be partying together, it's so much about their own personal experience and not their togetherness. <laughs> I, I love, love what you're saying. Um, what I often share with people is that oftentimes at a party, we're doing things together, but separately. Like there's this story we tell ourselves like, oh, I'm united with everyone around me. But there's actually very little eye contact, there's very little touch, there's very little attention that we put on each other in these uh, maladapted party environments. So yeah, creating more of that sense of, of unity and belonging and seeing each other. Uh, is something that, yeah, I'm obsessed with, and that's why I have like a toolkit of hundreds of games and songs, right? <laughs> yeah, I come back to this notion, it's interesting, this sober partying, and it's fascinating the more I think about it, because I would say that the real issue being that this lack of connectedness, this lack of unity, but oftentimes the I would say the drugs, the alcohol, if that's the main focus of the partying, then the unity is like second, third, or not even there at all. And so I guess that removing the sobriety puts that focus on the unity. And if someone were to have, you know, alcohol in their partying, like maybe if it took a second or third or fourth, like order priority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I, I just think there's so many other activities we could be doing in in our gatherings. Like even at a dinner party, I more broadly, like beyond partying, it's like, what do we do when we gather and socialize? We talk, we eat, we sit, and we like maybe, you know, really creative people will bring out board games. But like beyond that, There's so many social technologies that we have that we just, you know, a lot of people are afraid to use these social technologies, which in our language, Douglas, is like, you know, liberating structures, games, authentic relating activities, sentence prompts. And what I'm so excited about is like giving the average human these social technologies to bring to like their family dinner like how can we start these gatherings with connection and personal sharing and um and you know the best most people do and the the best most party planners do is like okay i'm gonna you know play some music i'm gonna have a dj and you know everyone's gonna drink and smoke because that's great for consumerism you know (laughs) so So it brings me to this question around, you know, what are folks that are kind of in these, you know, situations where they might be planning a party or might be thinking about alternatives? How how can they put that unity, put that connection? What are some of these ways that they can create a better space? Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, I have a framework that I developed over COVID and then sort of forgot about. I call it the fun quotient and it's like there's emotional intelligence and then there's like fun intelligence and you know immediately what comes to mind is is really welcoming people and celebrating 
everyone that shows up and then having an intentional opening ritual where the host demonstrates that it's okay to take interpersonal risks. So, so like right off the bat, what happens, what are people primed to do when they arrive at our social gathering? I want their expression to be celebrated the instant they arrive in my space. And one thing, one, one concept that I have within the, the fun intelligence quotient is the threshold of acceptable expression, okay? So if we lower this threshold, then there are more levels of acceptable expression everywhere. But if the threshold is super high, then people are not going to be dancing, singing, and whatnot. And so we as hosts, we have to lower that threshold for people by embodying, embodying that expression and embodying that fun. And uh, to me, like if we simplify psychological safety, psychological safety is like how willing, how safe do people feel to express themselves? Not only, you know, critiquing another person or bringing up bad news, but also like, do people feel comfortable to dance in front of others? Like dancing is a requires a lot of expression. Well, I guess I'm curious on the expression stuff makes sense. It also makes me think there's this like performative element to dance and to singing and these other ways that, you know, people might not be normal. Well, they might not be used to expressing themselves in those ways. Right. And so it's like not only the environment, but then personally how comfortable they are and do they view it as performative? And so I see mm. the point you're making around if it's modeled, even failure can basically lower the bar on that level of performance that we're expecting. Like, for instance, if you have an event where someone comes out uh, on the dance floor, you know, and they're just tearing it up and they've got all the moves and they're just <laughs> like killing it, you know, it can be entertaining, but. Is it going to get everyone on the floor? You know, it maybe depends on how how evocative or how addictive that person is and how much charisma they have, you know. But certainly it can be can be scary, right? Because they've set a level on the, uh, the level of that performance and what other people have to live up to. That sounds like kind of what you're kind of describing, right? I, I love this so much. I love the nuance here because if we're hosting an event, and we're performing, I believe like the opposite happens. People become less open to expression because um, they, they, they think that they should only take up space if they're really good at something. And for me, dance and song, they're like, yes, they're performance arts, but to me, there's a whole different category of dance and song where it's literally just about having fun and being lighthearted and being messy. Um, and I, I love this word messiness is a, is a mindset that I have. And I describe it at the beginning of every single corporate session. 
Human fallibility, accepting our human fallibility and our clumsiness, it's it's a messy process being human. And I think that as facilitators, if we acknowledge that and we demonstrate that we're not perfect, we're not going to you know, speak super articulately and we're not going to dance really well and we're not going to sing like Beyonce, then other people are like, oh, wait a second, I, I don't need to perform. I can just be myself. So it's so paradoxical. Like sometimes when I'm performing at my, you know, like highest performance, I'm actually doing the opposite as to my objective. My objective is to get the participants expressing so much joy, connecting with one another and being completely unselfconscious. So it's, it's often contradictory to my goal. Mm. That's fascinating. It makes me think too about, you know, when we're doing kind of design thinking or any sort of creative type workshop where we're asking folks to, you know, draw or sketch or create. And there's definitely a sentiment around, I'm not creative or I don't know how to draw. And ultimately, we're just trying to get people to visually communicate their ideas. Yeah. And, you know, this could be through metaphor or just it's more concrete, right? When, when we can express things and in those other ways, because words are not our only way to express ourselves. And I think it comes and it's another example of that performative nature of things, right? Because if they're so concerned about the skill or the craft of design and how a designer might create something or an illustrator might draw something then, you know, it, it can be very frightening to, to even put something out there because you might be judged relative to that. I love this example you're using because I feel that when I'm doing visual thinking exercises, I get into this mode where I'm like, oh, now I need to be an artist. But like, I think the distinction is we're not doing art. We're communicating visually. And the same is with dance and song is like a lot of people regard it as an art. It's like a performance art. But what I'm doing is very different. It's not the art. It's not meant to be spectated. The other thing you mentioned is this whole, like all the other ways that we can communicate, Douglas, like in our sessions, so often we're just stuck in intellectualizer talking mode. And what I'm so excited about is bringing in tools that create more of this empathetic communication, this energetic communication, right? Bringing in the synchrony, the visuals, the touch, all these are other ways that we can communicate other than conceptualizing, talking, intellectualizing. Well, it definitely taps into this lateral thinking type of territory, right? Because if we're just conceptualizing, we can hit those roadblocks, right? Like we're just kind of like pounding our head against the wall and it, it won't come, it won't come. But these other activities can unlock new pathways in the brain or, or inspire us to, to move past something that, that maybe, you know, have us stuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just building off this, I'm, uh, I'm thinking of play. I'm thinking of the imagination. And I'm thinking of an exercise that I get my participants to do uh, when I'm leading workshops about 
fun and joy and i get them to to just imagine that they're they're creating the craziest party experience ever and i just get them to build off each other imaginatively with yes and and people will just you know come up with all this funny stuff but uh you know there's there's this whole movement around playfulness in the workplace and I use this in my social gatherings a lot. I'll get people to adopt a different persona. Like, you know, I'll get people to have a Star Wars battle or I'll get people to uh, pretend it's Mission Impossible. And it really, I think, gets people out of their identity. And it basically gets people into a new creative state where they're no longer thinking about who they are and who they need to be consistent with. And it's like suddenly there's this whole new realm of possibility for for thinking and for play and for fun. Yeah, it's like certainly if we can create a judgment-free zone, then amazing things can happen. And that's easier said than done, right? Because our brains are constantly pattern matching and judging and even when we try not to. So what are some other ways that you kind of create these spaces where people kind of get a little more um, liberated. Mm, mm, love that word. Love that word. And, uh, just quickly say that, uh, I define a peak party experience by two things, liberation and exhilaration. How do I liberate people? Well, I, I first just like set the context at the beginning of the party. I'm like, we have all these inhibitions. Let's set an intention to get rid of them. You know, like just putting it out there explicitly and just being like, hey, this is what I'm going to be doing. And guess what? It's good for our health. It's good for our social bonds. And we're also just going to enjoy ourselves so much more. So creating that context, it's, it's you know, it's like, it's not very technical, but that's what I start with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It reminds me too of a point you made earlier around just the importance of celebrating your guests. And so I'm curious, like, what's your favorite way that you've celebrated a guest in the past? Uh, I love this question. And I want to hear yours too, Douglas, because uh, I know you just led, you led an event, right? In February. And I, uh, I was hoping to to come to that. So curious how you uh, greeted people and your reflections on that. I am all about eye contact touch and uh like dance so this this is like my ideal conference greeting method is someone arrives i look them in the eyes i offer them a hug i i i i really tune into them i'm not distracted i'm not rushed i'm not trying to get to the next person and then i play their favorite song on my boombox and I just, I dance for them and they may dance with me or they just kind of laugh and are like, who's this goofball? Oh my God. Wait a second though. Subconsciously, I feel so much more able to be a goofball myself, right? Like that's the subtext. <laughs> um, so I, I love to play 
people's favorite music. And the, the reason why I do that, Douglas, is because music and the brain and our mood and our physical energy are all related. And we can prime people. We can change people's physiological state just by playing a song that has meaning to them. And so what I'm saying is because music and memory are so connected, someone's favorite song is just going to put them into such a an open state, you know, a pro-social state, as I say. So uh, yeah, that's that's what I'd do if I was like leading a massive conference or South by Southwest. I don't know. <laughs> I love it. There's a lot of songs and a lot of dancing. So you might be a little <laughs> tired by the end, but I think you're maybe up for it. I'm also curious, you talked about touch being an element that you like to bring into into your experiences. So yeah. what's, what's an example for our listeners that might be a little less experienced with bringing in kind of kinesthetic components? Totally, totally. You know, I, I went to Burning Man and I was actually the ambassador for the Hug Deli. And I learned a bunch of hugs there that are less intense. I'm a big fan of hand-holding. I get people to do a hand hug and look each other in the eyes. So you just put out your hand, wrap your thumb around the person's hand, and just take a breath and smile at the other person. That's a hand hug. I actually recently just got people to mingle around at uh, an event I led. And I just had them mingle around put out their hand, connect with another person, just look them in the eyes and smile. And I just did that for like three minutes. I had people mingle around and hand hug one another with eye contact. Now, what I also love to do is I'm a huge fan of huddles and circles. And so I, I get people to put their, their arms over top of one another. And usually I set context within a huddle. So I get people into a huddle and then I go into the center and I, I set the context. I say, this is why we're here. This is what we're going to do. And let's, let's, let's make this amazing for one another. And I, I kind of get into that kind of crazy charismatic mode, uh, where I'm also self-deprecating myself, <laughs> um, self-deprecating as a way to create that permission yeah. Do you have anything to add? Like kind of what are those baby steps of touch in in your facilitator philosophy? Well, certainly in this age of the pandemic, it's nice to at least bring back some physical things. So even just mailing people, you know, post-its and markers and potentially objects that they might share in common or might have divergent objects. You know, maybe someone gets a a little marble and someone else gets something else. Even just touching physical objects and having them in your hand, it's like a kinesthetic version of doodling. Yeah, I love that so much. I talk a lot about oxytocin in my work, um, which is the trust neurotransmitter. And so for me, I, you know, I really, I really love that. And when I'm teaching people how to incorporate more fun and joy into their presentations, uh, yeah, like basically not making it a presentation and just having the participants, you know, like bring an item into their screen as an example and show and tell or like interpret something through the item that they have. So this idea of joy in the presentations is a really awesome concept. So 
What other tips do you have for folks when they're kind of asking about or endeavoring into, you know, punching things up? Yeah, yeah. One thing that I teach uh, in the fun intelligence quotient is the importance of being in a pro-social state. It's the idea that your vibe is contagious. Okay. So one of the habits I share with everyone who comes through one of my workshops is the habit of checking in with your nervous system before you do a presentation or before you lead a workshop. If you just have more expression in your voice and you're moving your hands and you're smiling just like I am right now, like it's so much more engaging and gravitating and people feel safe. So the habit that I introduce to people is uh, check in with yourself and actually activate some positive emotions in yourself before you're going into a presentation or before you're going on stage. And you can do that through music. You can do that through movement. You can do that through looking over your Google photos and, and watching a video of yourself that brings you so much joy, right? You can do it through self-talk. The other thing that I'd uh, say is just variety, variety. We, we, we know this as people who've led uh, a lot of online workshops. We don't just want to leverage one type of media. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I just break up like all my pres presentations with demonstrations and uh, usually the demos involve movement, involve some sort of fun thing, uh, involve something in the chat, and it's just like micro engagements throughout the entire presentation. And then music. Music is, is also a, a piece here. And I actually have a database of music that just makes people laugh and stimulates joy. And remember, music is a great way to basically create a context and elicit different memories, right? And different visuals. And so, uh, yeah, if anyone wants to leverage more music in their sessions, uh, you can check out the Party Scientists on Spotify and there's a playlist called Laugh. <laughs> and it's just a bunch of music that uh, creates that permission for people to be their messy, goofy selves. <laughs> awesome. We'll get that in the show notes so people can check those out. That's awesome. So I did want to mention one thing. You were talking about the energy you bring into the stage. And I once had a speaking coach tell me that um, you should always run on the stage because that's the most energy you'll have in your entire performance. Because oh it yeah. always goes downhill from whatever you start with. So like start with as much energy as you can because everything will just tend to settle down. Let me just kind of shift gears a little bit because I am really curious, you know, because you, you talk about the importance of kind of public health and how this work is really critical to helping people mentally and even physicality of it's like both mental and physical. And I guess I'm curious, when do you know if a group's being pushed too far? Because often you're probably working with groups that are kind of outside of their comfort zone. And that's an important aspect of this, right? They're in that space that they don't spend a lot of time in. So what's the difference between healthy discomfort and something that's dysfunctional or unhealthy? And how do you know when to pull back? Wow. 
Oh, gosh. Maybe I'm going to write an article about this, Douglas. Uh, well, I, I want your support in this question. You know, immediately what's coming to mind is giving people really accurate expectations so that they are consenting to what is happening. And so before all my sessions, I send people a voice recording with what I'm going to do, with what we're going to do together, with why we're doing it. And I give people this accurate picture of what they're consenting to. And I think what that enables is people to surrender to the experience. Okay. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing that's coming up is, uh, this is one of my friends mentioned this when he was setting context at one of his workshops. He said, everything is an invitation and you are sovereign. You are the master of yourself. And at any point, you can decide to not participate. Um, you know, because I'm such a edgy facilitator, I... Uh, I, I do. I do leverage positive peer pressure to foster higher engagement. And I do make it known that, hey, courage is necessary during this experience. And guess what? The more courage that you apply in this experience, participants are going to benefit from you. So I make that really clear. But I also make sure people know that, like, hey, everything's an invitation. So that's a part of creating context. Now, the last thing I would recommend is explicitly mentioning the, like, like getting meta. And what I mean by that is like, hey, friends, we're going to be doing this. You probably haven't done it before. We're going to be trying it out. We're going to be experimenting with it. And if it doesn't feel right, then, you know, you don't have to do it. But just being explicit about, hey, this is edgier and there may be a little discomfort. And guess what? You get to choose how much you want to push yourself. That really works as well. Now, in my experiences, because they're like they're like a series of joy ignition exercises, a lot of that is implicit. One thing that I have a question about is uh, this idea of like putting the spotlight on others without like their explicit consent beforehand. So like I will practice a lot of nominations during my sessions. I will spotlight people and be like, okay, would you like to lead a stretch? I, I ask that and, but I'm like, really, I'm putting them on the spot. And then they lead a stretch. But the secret, the secret to that is I get everyone to celebrate their expression so that suddenly they have this rush of validation and they feel really good. But yeah, this is a good question. <laughs> no, that's all good stuff. You know, I think the consent piece is really interesting and kind of explored that with one of the podcast guests in the past, Madeline Guinazzo. She's a, a cuddle facilitator. And as you might imagine, consent's a big part of the work because the facilitator has the consent and the participant has the consent and there's clear boundaries that need to be established. And in other work, it's not quite so strict, maybe, but consent nonetheless being really important. And 
I would say understanding the room would be really important. Like who is the, going to be there and what are they bringing with them? Because if they've experienced some trauma that we might be re-triggering, that's important to know, you know, to your point around putting people on the spot and things, right? Like, is there a pre-existing rapport that we built that we can leverage to start doing some of that early modeling? Because I think what you described with the applause too is really awesome from a from the standpoint of, hey, not only did, did we call on them and they shared, but then now everyone celebrated them. So that's cool. Yeah. And just building off this consent piece, we as facilitators need to be very clear on what we are asking consent for. And I don't want to trick people into expanding their comfort zone. I want people to know exactly what I'm guiding them through so that they can give a full hell yes. And so this this all comes before the workshop. So like really, you know, all I got to do is then just do what I do. Like mm. I lead my exercises, I put the instructions in the chat and people they they feel empowered to say no and they they know what they consented to. They know they're going to get spotlit, you know, if they have their videos on. And they know that when they do get spotlit, you know, on Zoom or in person, I put them in the middle. They they put themselves in the middle. They um they know that this is benefiting the rest of the group. And so there's there isn't this kind of context of like, oh, like this is uncomfortable. I'm getting all this attention. It's more like, oh, I'm doing this for others. I'm not just doing this for myself, you know? Yeah. So I'm really curious, you know, when you think about all the sessions you've run, what's one story that pops to mind that just super memorable, exciting, maybe the most exhilarating memory that comes to mind? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you notice like in, in my in my voice and my face, like already just thinking about this memory, I'm I'm getting myself into such a more pro social state. And so going back to what we were saying beforehand, you know, if we wanna so much, so much of our success as facilitators is just like our vibe, you know? <laughs> you know, what's coming to mind is this this holiday party I did, uh, this virtual this virtual party I did for a group of radiologists. It was the University of British Columbia Radiology Department. And we had a group of about 50 participants. I had two co-facilitators who were essentially my undercover hype humans. And we're doing this exercise where people bring an item into the screen and just like, you know, move it up and down or just like dance with it. Right. And this is this is later on in the experience. We begin with a stretch and a meditation. And so people, you know, people have their blood going. And uh, so every time we spotlight people, it's like, they have that in their house? Like, what is going on? And everyone just starts to laugh. And so we're, we're going through and we're spotlighting everyone and people are having fun. And then uh, we find this one man who's probably like 70 years old and he is dancing with an, an, an Olympic torch, Douglas. He has an Olympic torch in his hand. <laughs> so 
<laughs> and uh, the whole crowd's just laughing and like, it's what? How did this guy get an Olympic torch? And uh, so that was a really highlighted moment, especially Douglas. I I love seeing age diversity in in terms of joy expression and i find that it's so much more acceptable to be playful and joyful as a young person and as we age you know we're wiser and we're serious and like man i love a good dance party with age diversity and so i i think that was a really special part of it as well because Douglas, I don't see my parents dancing a lot. Like I wish, I wish they would be a little bit more playful and come to some of my uh, some of my bike raves, you know, mm. sober bike raves. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to do a little workshop on how do we get them there. I do have one question about this amazing session that you're describing. Was the torch lit? Well, see, that's that's that's. That's what I have to follow up uh, about because, you know, we're, we're going to be doing our next party soon and uh, we're all going to, I'm going to ship everyone a, an Olympic torch and uh, we're all just going to fire up the dance floor, you know? <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. But it had been lit, which meant he had held the torch for a portion of the tour. Amazing. That's so cool. So it does bring up another question that I had for you, which was in person or virtual? Oh, I love it. I love it. It's it's a false dilemma to me. Listen, I started designing virtual parties in March and I was a total idiot and I didn't even know how to share audio through Zoom. And, uh, you know, we hit the ground running. And after 100 virtual parties... I get people high on life. And guess what? I get high on life. It, it blows my mind how much fun I have when I am facilitating a really positive virtual party with like, you know, 30 or more people. It's, it's incredible that it's possible. And I think, I think the reason why people may have pessimism toward the virtual world is because there's few party scientists out there and there's few really adept facilitators who are able to make it fun and joyful and energizing. And this is a science that I've cultivated over, you know, hundreds of virtual events. Ultimately though, uh, Douglas, I believe one of the healthiest parts of human connection is touch. And so the, the highlights of my life, the peak experiences of my life have been facilitating what I call a mega drop. So I have people in a giant circle in like a public square somewhere. And this is what we do on Canada Day every year, but no longer. I have everyone at the drop in the music and it's like a really big buildup. It's like the anticipation, everybody. And I have everyone run into the center respectfully, responsibly, and I have them join hands with two people and just jump up and down. And there's, there's, there's the touch and then there's the proximity. And both of those, I can't replicate. I cannot replicate that intensity, that liberation and exhilaration on Zoom. I just can't. 
It's interesting, you know, there's some truth there on the virtual points, as well as, you know, there's lots of things that just can't be replicated. And I think that's where a lot of people get in trouble is just trying to replicate things that are great in person without actually looking at what's possible in virtual and just embracing what it can do. And then you start to get in territory where now it's like, well, now that we're in person, we can't do this other thing. And so you start to look at them as unique individual things that are beautiful in and of themselves. And specifically, that torch moment you described would never have been possible in person because, you know, it was an artifact in his home that he was sharing because he was at home. That's a type of connection. So there's a kinesthetic connection, but there's also this kind of like connection into our lives that has started to happen through virtual. Right. Douglas, the number of times I've had parents bring their children into the virtual experience, it's so beautiful. And and uh, it, it's just like, I just get tears of joy when I see these children just like, they're the ones like leading the party. <laughs> so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear ya. Well, I know we could go on and on and on, but we are nearing our end. And I want to make sure that I leave us time for you to leave our listeners with a final thought. Mm, thank you. Thank you. My favorite quote, your developmental success is based on the joy of the people around you. This is this is speaks to me. And you know, I I also just want to say that uh joy and fun are both ends and means. They're super healthy. They're really good for us. Okay? But they also unlock creative uh thinking. They promote social bonds and they're really, uh, you know, good for our health. Like we, we could regard them as a health habit. And so they're both ends and means. And this is why I prioritize joy at the beginning of my sessions. I incorporate joy and fun all over, you know, micro moments, 30 seconds within my sessions that are uh, more, you know, academic and educational. The last thing uh, I'll say is uh, I've devoted my life to to studying how to facilitate joy. And this is, you know, I tell people I'm the only PhD in party science. I'm working on it. I don't have a real PhD, but I have a a bachelor's degree in pharmacology. But uh, I write, I write about this in my uh, private blog. It's called Joy Lab. And anyone listening, just reach out to me. Or go to my website and I can uh, I can give you a free subscription for you to check out. So that's Joy Lab and uh, that that's really it. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing, and we'll make sure to get the website and a few other things came up that I think would be good for us to drop into the show notes. So we'll get all that stuff in for everyone to reference the Joy Lab as well as PartyScientist.fun so that everyone can check this stuff out. And it's been a pleasure chatting with you, Jacques, and I hope you have a joyful day. Woo! Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. 
Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. If you want more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com